Well, good morning, friends. It really is a great joy to be able to be back here at Walden Road. We were trying to work out just when last I was here. I think it was 18 months, 24 months, eh? quite a while ago. And since then, I've been around the world in different places and different parts to be able to share the gospel of our Lord and Savior. And I certainly am grateful for your prayers and interest in our ministry. And we thank God for those who are part of this. And uh, my wife, every week, sends out, on Friday night, she sent out to over 1,100 people in different parts of the world to be praying for Walden Road during these days. And so there is a highly concentrated, uh, focused prayer going out for God's blessing upon the church in these days. And so I believe we have a divine appointment, and I trust we will not miss what God wants to do uh, within our midst. When Billy Graham was just a young preacher, he was in a certain town somewhere in the U.S. having meetings, and he was walking through the street, and he happened to meet a young fellow, and he said to the young man, can you show me how to get to the post office. And he said, you just go down the street here and there and there and you'll find the post office. And he said, by the way, what are you doing in this town of ours? Oh, I'm here to show people how to get to heaven. He said, good gracious me, this man doesn't even know how to get to the post office and now he's trying to tell us to go to heaven. (laughs) But we are so grateful for the opportunity to be here and trust that God's blessing will be upon the meetings today, tonight, Monday, and Tuesday. I'm on a two-month trip of your country, and just in the second week now, we're going up to Alabama from here. My wife will be joining me for two weeks of the trip, and I'm so grateful for that. And she'll be with me while in Alabama. Just sorry she couldn't get here. So you can all hear there. That's, that's so important. <clears throat> yes, I spent two months, March and April, across in the beautiful country of New Zealand. Just an amazing country. It only has about four and a half million people. And was there during the time, you'll remember, in April, when someone walked into a mosque and shot 50 uh, Islamic people. And it really was almost a national catastrophe as New Zealand was uh, so deeply upset because this is something totally foreign to the lifestyle and culture in New Zealand. But it certainly created a wonderful opportunity to minister in the churches and to bring to the attention of the church the tremendous forces that are loose and the powers that are active within that country. And... uh, I was able to go to a number of churches right around on the North and the South Island, but did find that that country, although it's a Western organized country, it was very secular, very human, humanistic, very materialistic. I, we met people that had never heard of Jesus Christ, and it really was a, 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 an eye-opener to see what a mission field it was. 
We are taking teams back there next year, actually. They're crying out for spiritual help and for evangelism, and so we'll be taking teams back there next September, and we certainly would be grateful for your prayers for that. And incidentally, in your praying, pray for my son and his wife and children. They are leaving tonight from South Africa to emigrate to New Zealand. He's a pastor and works on church planting, and they're moving across tonight, and that God will continue to open the doors for that. God bless them for the willingness to go and serve God in that particular capacity. So glad to have the Ruchters with us here this morning. They gave me wonderful hospitality. Please give them a good hand. I've known them for a long time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Right, now, I want us to turn to the book of Samuel, and I want to speak this morning on one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 17, and uh, we'll start reading from verse 20. I think all of you here, even the young folk, should be familiar with this story, and yet every time we look at it, it's got something fresh to tell us. Somehow there's something about the word that every time you look at it, you've seen something you haven't seen before. That's the Holy Spirit in action, you see, and he's there to illuminate the sacred page. And I trust as we look at the story, we will discover something fresh this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 17 and reading from verse 20. There we are. Myself. Oh, here we go. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. So Israel and the Philistines, for Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. You have a pen with you, underline that word ran. It occurs three times in the story of when he kept running. And uh, it's quite interesting. Then as he talked with them, there was a champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name coming up from the armies of, Philist, of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches and will give his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And we notice a particular difference here when identifying the enemy, the, 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 the Israelis saw this as 
an attack against Israel. He saw it as an attack against the armies of the living God. And so he saw beyond that which was seen and saw what was into the unseen as he assessed the situation. And the people answered him in this matter saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David and said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart. You've come down to see the battle. And uh, David said, What have I done now? Notice that word now. It's rather interesting, and I'll elaborate on it. In other words, they keep on hammering the poor guy, and what, what wrong have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he went for him. And he sent to him for him. Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. Then David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. When it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the, uh, from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So Saul clothed David with his armor and put a bronze helmet on his head. He also closed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? You come to me with sticks. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, what a statement of faith is about to be declared. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. This day I will give the carcasses of the camp 
of the Philistines, to the birds of the air, the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all the assembly shall know that the Lord God does not save with the sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and again, second, the second ran, ran towards the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead, so that the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed against the Philistine with a sling and with a saw, a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran, this is number three, where he was running, and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, and drew it out of its sheath and killed him, and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they also ran. They fled in another direction. And uh, we, we leave it just there, just so far. May God bless and interpret those words into our hearts. Father, I just pray that right now, in your faithfulness, your Holy Spirit will work in all of our hearts. Open our eyes to see and behold wondrous things out of your word. Minister to each one in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I think you'll soon discover if you start reading the Bible from Genesis that the Bible is a book about war. Right from the beginning of time and history, there was a battle raging in the beautiful Garden of Eden. That battle never stopped, did never stop, and will never stop until we finally gather in the fields of Megiddo for the final battle of the ages the battle of Armageddon. And so you and I find ourselves in the midst of a terrifying battle. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against powers and principalities of darkness. It's against spiritual wickedness in high places. And so we find here that in this particular battle, as in all cases, this battle was reduced to the individual level. And the one that won represented the entire nation. So everyone was naturally scared because they saw the far-reaching implications and consequences of the outcome of the battle. And so we find that uh, the people were scared. Poor old Saul was so backslidden, the king was so backslidden, he didn't dare come out of his little hole that he was hiding in. And so the nation was in terror and in fear. There seemed to be no solution to the crisis in that nation. What was happening was a man by the name of Goliath, a huge, colossal kind of a man, came and threatened the heart of that nation. This giant breathed down and spat out his blasphemies against the living God. Little did the nation realize what was fully involved in this. 
You see, friends, just as David found that he had to face this huge giant in his life, many people today are facing the threat of many giants in their lives. Someone as well said that in every pew there is a broken heart. And I think that's true in one sense. Because every one of us are engaged in some kind of a battle. And it's not against flesh and blood. It's against something far greater than flesh and blood. It's against the forces of darkness that are ganging up together to focus their attention upon each one of us as individuals. And the implications are far-reaching, far more reaching than we realize. What a situation. The giants we face can be tangible as well as intangible. They're there to destroy, to depress, to discourage, and to keep us from our full potential as servants of the Most High God. It could, the giants could be some unattainable goal, some unfinished project, some unfulfilled dream, some irrevocable situation, and it stands as a, as a giant that threatens your life and seeks to th- remove from us all the joy of walking the heights with God. A giant in your life. And if you do not slay that giant, that giant will slay you. That's how serious it is. The giants expose our hidden weakness. The giants show our hidden, reveal our hidden failures. And they remind us that we are but dust, that we've got no chance whatsoever. But I can tell you one thing this morning. If you're walking with God... The giants will expose your hidden strengths that we have as children of the most high God. (coughs) Are there giants in your life? You see, friends, whenever there's an opportunity to serve God, there's opposition from the giant. Whenever there's potential in your life to fulfill your God-given call, problems arise. The enemy knows how to place these. Whenever there is the possibility of glorious victory, there is the shadow of defeat. Satan's greatest intention in your life and mine is to to paralyze and to neutralize our faith. Because you see, friends, your faith is your greatest asset you'll ever have. Far greater than anything you've got. All the things we have will pass away. All the education we have will eventually die. But it's your faith that is most so important. Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns... Will he find faith? Now, faith, its power lies in the object of its faith. You see, the object of its faith is Jesus Christ. And faith comes from a trust and a commitment to Jesus Christ. 
of your entire life. I remember when I gave my heart to Jesus at the age of 15 back in South Africa. I'd been bitten by a snake. My life was in the balance. And I knew I was going to face eternity. God, by His grace, carried me through. But this is what happened. I made a decision there, not only to trust Jesus to save my soul, but also to save my life. Because we've only got one life. It will soon be passed. And it's only what's done for Christ that will last. Nothing else will count in the final analysis of your life and mine. Absolutely nothing. And we're running after those things that get us nowhere in life. What a situation David found himself. And I want to speak really on David's game plan for the Goliath in his life. What a challenge it was. You see, he had a number of options within reach, like we all have. He could have deserted like everybody else was hiding when they should have been standing. He could have lived in denial that this reality wasn't really there. It was just some kind of an attempt to strike fear. He could have lived in that denial. He could have lived, friends, in an attempt to deviate the challenge that was coming through to him. Nobody asked him to participate. In fact, he was despised for doing so. But he realized there was something at stake. And he dare not abdicate the responsibility. He saw it as a challenge. And he needed a strategy. He needed a game plan. He couldn't just sit there with the others and gaze into the stars and hope that something would come down from heaven. He realized that he was not there by accident. He had a divine appointment that he could not run from. He had to run into. The game plan was so important. He had to view the entire situation with all its threats and possibilities and with all his inadequacies. He had to view the entire situation from the divine perspective. It's the only way. We look at it from our perspective. We look at it from the world's perspective. And we try and even look at it from the politician's perspective. I guess we will go if you follow that. Um, Daniel, David, remembered, was reminded of the past. That's his first part of the game plan. You see, verses 34 to 37, he had built a basis of faith in what God had done in the past. And the same God that had carried him through the threat of the lion and the threat of the beast, of the bear, would carry him through against this defiant Philistine. You know, I think sometimes in the Christian life there are things we need to remember that we forget. There are also things we need to forget that we forget that we ought to remember. Now, he remembered what God had done in the past. And this became the basis from which he could approach the situation. The yesterday's faithfulness guarantees tomorrow's courage. And he's going to need it now. 
He couldn't suddenly find some formula. He relied now on the courage and his faithfulness of the past. You don't build faith overnight. It's an ongoing experience, an ongoing growth process. You can't suddenly shove into a man's heart at the judgment day all the faith he needs in that hour. No, friends, it starts long before then. It's a day-by-day walk with God, understanding His Word and living in the light as He is in the light. Never forget what God has done in your life in the past. You see, Philippians 1 verse 6 tells us these amazing words that I always hang on to, being confident of this very thing, that He which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day. Of Jesus Christ. God has begun something. He's not finished yet. We are still under construction by the way. It's a day by day challenge. You see. The greatest indicator. Of the future. Is what God has done in the past. He's done it in different ways. Historically. We've seen God at work. You never decided to come into this world. You never chose who your parents would be. You never decided, I'm going to settle in Corpus Christi. You didn't decide on your gender. Someone else decided it for you. God appointed a point in time when you came into this world. It wasn't for nothing, by the way. It wasn't to just get onto a survival trip. It was to fulfill divine plans of God's creative genius. He's also appointed the day to die. Oh, we can precede that in our sin. But he has that moment worked out. He is in charge. He's in control right through to the end. Look at his birth and resurrection. What an incredible thing. You see, the life of Jesus is flanked by two impossibilities. The virgin birth and the empty tomb. Two total impossibilities. That's the life of Jesus. His entire life is characterized by the supernatural, but also by his controlling influence. Yet there are people today that live their own lives and live in rebellion and live in rejection and in unbelief. Historically, what a great moment. You see, when the resurrection happened, the word of impossibility was cancelled by this incredible miracle that characterized his life. This is the Savior that we call you to rise up and follow. I'd rather follow a victorious man of God or God than anyone or anything else in this world. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. There was something else that we see that was part of the game plan. He also had to come to terms, like we all do, to realize what the stakes were. What was at stake? The the implications. The consequences. <laughs> he had 
view this, he had to view this from God's perspective, or else he would sink into depression. That's how we have to view our lives, from the divine perspective. Otherwise, it's just too much. The pressures are coming in from every side. You don't know who to trust. You don't know what to believe anymore. It's all falling away, as the Bible says it will. But you see, your friends, he realized the stakes. Now, we look at verse 25 and 26, and we'll see something of it. Verse 25, thus you shall say to David, the king does not... No, sorry, I'm in the next chapter. Verse 25... So the men of Israel said, How, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he's come to defy Israel. Verse 26, Paul, uh, uh, David says, He's come to defy the armies of the living God. There's a slight difference. They were just looking, as I mentioned a moment ago, at the scene, at the immediate problem. God had an overall view. And he sees that he's God's name is at stake the fight you and I have cannot be fought on the human plane because we're going to lose look around and there are many defeated people go to the mental asylums the prisons and you'll find there are many many people that have lost their way and the devil has moved in in his total brutality it cannot be fought at the human plane or through human resources. We're trying to do this, friends. Even our pride keeps us from that. But it cannot be fought or won at that level. You see, the opposite of faith is fear. And fear creeps into every life. What happens tomorrow? I might lose my job tomorrow. I might get the doctor's verdict that I've got cancer tomorrow. I may not survive until next Sunday. And so it goes on and on. There are fears crouching on every side which mankind cannot control. Fear tolerated is faith contaminated. Now true it is. The trouble was, as today, and sadly in many churches, that Saul's armies, Saul's armies were oblivious to this fact. That it was only going to be their faith in their God that's going to make the difference. That's why they ran. That's why they couldn't take on the challenge. They had no way to overcome it. David found a way. You see, man being what we are as... The late Ron Dunn said, a man will never trust God unless he has to. And that's true. We don't really want to. We'd like to rely on our own genius. But we are fools, quite frankly. The only way through life is through faith in God. And faith cometh by hearing and hearing from the word of God. And yet somehow, friends, we don't believe that. If we did, friends, we would be nourishing our lives day by day with the word. We'd be like those disciples of old in the book of Acts. Every day they were in the house of God. In the Western world, we've closed down Wednesday nights. We've closed down Sunday nights. And we're just completely in disarray. And we're living on the minimum. How can we fight the devil on the minimum, friends? We're running on an empty tank. So we find that David 
discover the issues that are at stake, the glory of God, the future of the nation. The battle of the ages was raging. And then into this scenario, Goliath introduced another kind of weapon that I see all over the world today. He says here in this verse, in verse 43, he cursed David by his gods. In other words, he brought another vicious serpent into that scene. He brought the occult. He brought his gods to strengthen his case. My friends, we're seeing this rampant. We're seeing our boys and girls have been exposed to this. What a tragic situation. There's an explosion of the occult. Harry Potter is rampant. And our little mind, the little minds of boys and girls are being contaminated by the very claws of the enemy. One lady said to me, my child has never slept since she saw the video of Harry Potter. And our problem today, friends, is simply this. It's ignorance and indifference. Now, two deacons were discussing, you know, the problem in our church is ignorance and indifference. And the other replies and says, well, I don't know and I don't care. Are we aware of what's going on? You're in the midst of it. You call yourself a Christian today? You're in the midst of the worst conflict of history. Satan will offer you anything he can. Anything that will appeal to your flesh, to your intellect, anything to our materialistic minds to get us off the track of faith. Until we're living by the flesh. And until our faith is down to zero. Only takes one ounce of disobedience and your faith begins to shrink. Then we have what we call the rejection of the negatives. David faced negatives like never before. My friend, you're living in a day where, from every point of view, uh, from the media especially, there are negatives that are seeking to attack what you believe. Everything that we believe from the Word of God is under attack. Not by some stupid scientist, but by the devil himself. Using minds that have never been surrendered to the will of God. That are seeking to inject a poison. The rejection of the negatives. Well, it came from different quarters. It came from his family. Number one. He was in trouble with his own family. And sometimes this is where the attacks come from. We see in verse 28 through to 30. His brothers gave him a rather rough time. Until David said, what have I done now? In other words, it was piling up upon him all the time and he dare not expect any kind of help or encouragement from home. Trouble in your family? Broken relationships? There's a giant. There's so much heartbreak today. Verse 30, the people, not only his his family, but, he's, but the people. What do you think you're doing? Have you lost your mind? Do you realize what the implications are of these statements you're making? 
they were not encouraging. And my friends, I want to tell you this morning, there is nothing out there in the secular world to build your faith. Nothing. And yet that's where we live. That's where we spend our time and our resources. It's around the Word of God with the family of God, the bride of Christ, you're going to spend all of eternity where you're going to find your faith encouraged. And I thank God for the remnant that I'm seeing in this country of men and women that are serious, that have passed the stage of playing games, that are willing to pay any price to stand for what's right and true, allowing it to affect your votes, allowing it to affect your allegiances, you see, friends, we've lost our values. They've been stolen from us. Who do you think is going to fight it? Only the church of Jesus Christ. No one else. What a situation. Even the king, the highest position, the highest office in the land. See, you're just a kid, man. What have you got to offer? Of course we are inadequate. But it's not that, friends. You see, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. He takes our lives broken, messed up. But when he sees a heart that's serious, that's past the stage of playing games, that breaks through the indifference that has controlled us, our thinking and our responses, when he sees a man that he's willing to go through with God, no matter who says what, he moves forward and he blesses. He also had opposition from the enemy, by the way. In fact, the enemy had used all these bright people around him as they had nothing else to offer. The enemy was telling him in verse 42 and 44, what an idiot he was. And you see, to stand for God, this is the kind of thing you can expect. The world's not going to pat your back because you love Jesus and walk with him and refuse to engage in all what's going on in that wicked world out there. We have violated one law after another. Then he has another uh, part of his game plan was he relied on spiritual weapons. Saul offered him the choice weapons, those that he was afraid to use himself. Because he knew that his own heart was out of touch with God. He'd lost his way. And, for, and he finds he can't accept these carnal weapons. You see, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty to the pulling down of the strongholds. Do we know those weapons, friends? They're there. They've been purchased with the blood of Jesus. And the worst thing you can have is weapons stored in your house, but you don't know how to use them. If we're not using our, friend, our weapons, friends, then all the church is is a military parade. And we display them. Aren't they nice? We don't know how to use them. He found a spiritual weapon both for defense and attack. You see, he wanted to be holy before he could be a hero. He wanted to be a servant before he could be a soldier. He found the choice, the path, the pattern to use these weapons. My friends, have we found that? Saul says, now you use my weapons. Maybe they think it's me going out there. He had no idea. He had no idea. 
then he uses a very important term and introduces this into the battlefield. He refers to the Lord of hosts. This is what it's all about. This is who's involved. It's not against flesh and blood. It's the Lord of hosts that I'm introducing into the situation. And my friends, until we introduce the Lord of hosts into our homes, into our families, into our lives, we will stumble on. Is the Lord there? Or is there so much junk? Things that belong to the world, the flesh and the devil, that the Lord's got no say. The only time we hear God's voice is here in the church, and even then it's blurred. Not because of the preacher, but because we come with hearts and minds, friends, that are aptly cluttered with all the junk that this world allows us to feed on. He relied on a divine authority. He brought God Almighty into the equation. Now, this is where we make a mistake. We want God, we bring God into many of our situations. We ask God to bless our family, and right? We ask Him as we dedicate our children. And that's right. But you can't bring God into the equation and then reject God. He's committed to you. In fact, He's more committed to us than we are to Him. And so He brings God right into the, uh, into the equation here. God gives Him the authority that He needs. Fear has gone. He's alone now. It's him and Goliath. No other help whatsoever is guaranteed. He stands alone in that battlefield just as you and I do. All he's got is divine authority. And he's in the majority. <laughs> You see, Satan has no authority over us except surrendered or stolen authority. We've let him have his way for too long. He does not belong in your home. He does not belong in your life. He does not belong in a church. It's Christ and Christ himself. David finds five smooth stones. Stones that had been shaped down through the years by God. God had arranged those stones to be there at that moment. You see, God's on time. This is the God we worship. Can we believe Him with our problems? He has a shepherd's bag that he's been building as well and he places them in the shepherd's bag where the secret things that God has given to him are located. Do you have a shepherd's bag? For you know God is what he said to you. That you can draw from when the battle gets too tough. He couldn't rely now on carnal advice. He couldn't rely upon anyone. Which takes me to the next point. He ran towards the enemy. While everybody was running away, David was running to the enemy. You talk about courage. Normally speaking, he'd be regarded as a fool. To the carnal mind, how ridiculous. 
You see, it's no good us talking about faith unless our faith is in action. Yet he takes all that he's believed. It wasn't too much, friends, but it was enough to motivate him. It was enough to mobilize him. And into the battle he went. God, you take care. I'm trusting you. Courage is a corresponding behavior of empowered faith. The final thought is, his was a reciprocation action. You see, verses 51, 52, and 54. That stone went right to the forehead, the most vulnerable point of the head. You know why? God was directing it. He's perfect. Goliath had never been challenged like this before. Everybody had fallen down and worshipped him. The world needs to be challenged by faith. He doesn't understand that. This was a different kind of attack. Do you know what happened? Goliath went down. And young David was able to cut off his head by using Goliath's own sword. His own sword. David ran and stood over the Philistine. Took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him. Cut off his head with it. My friend, that was an impossibility. But if you read the history of God's people, come with me for a while to Africa. Come with me into the Iron Curtain countries and across to China, where they don't have the kind of freedoms we have, but they do have a faith. And listen to the stories of divine intervention, something we only read about. This is the God in action. You see, the Bible says, prove me now. That's a risk. We like our comfort zones. A doctrinal protectance. But David, in the early Olympic Games, they would have the races. And of course, the winner was the one that got first to the winning post. But there was one particular race that was a little different to the races that they would have. Each one would have a lamp, a lighted lamp, and they would run with this lighted lamp and race towards the finishing line. You know who the winner was? The one whose light was still burning. The one whose lamp was still burning. That's what counts. Has your lamp gone out? It's time to be ignited again. Reignited. It's time for the flame to burn. You don't want to get to the end and the flame's gone out. This is one of the prayers of my heart. That I will, when I come to the end of life's little road, and I'm 75 now, that the lamp will still be burning. That I'll still be strong. I've seen men deteriorate towards the end of life. And it can happen so easy. Blow after blow. That's not the divine intention. 
these are the days to strengthen that which remains, to hold on. Don't wait until the situation favors you or the plan is perfectly formed. The tide of opinion turns. Courage only waits for one thing, the green light from God. Will you turn it on, my friend? And if somehow you've sensed this giant has disturbed and robbed you of so much, how long are you going to tolerate it? You don't have to live like that. You weren't born to live like that, friends. God didn't create us to be failures. He created us to be number amongst the overcomers. And every one of us, individually, have to face the giant. And either you kill the giant, or the giant will kill you. May you be numbered amongst the overcomers.